Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Valthum by Clark Ashton Smith To a cursory observer, it might have seemed that Bob Haynes and Paul Septimus Chandler had little enough in common, other than the predicament of being stranded without funds on an alien world. Haynes, the third assistant pilot of an ether-liner, had been charged with insubordination by his superiors, and had been left behind in Ignar, the commercial metropolis of Mars, and the port of all space traffic. The charge against him was wholly a matter of personal spite, but so far Haynes had not succeeded in finding a new berth, and the month's salary paid to him at parting had been devoured with appalling swiftness by the pirate rates of the Tellurian Hotel. Chandler, a professional writer of interplanetary fiction, had made a voyage to Mars to fortify his imaginative talent by a solid groundwork of observation and experience. His money had given out after a few weeks, and fresh supplies, expected from his publisher, had not yet arrived. The two men, apart from their misfortunes, shared an illimitable curiosity concerning all things Martian. Their thirst for the exotic, their proclivity for wandering into places usually avoided by terrestrials, had drawn them together in spite of obvious differences of temperament, and had made them fast friends. Trying to forget their worries, they had spent the past day in the queerly piled and huddled maze of old Ignar, called by the Martians Ignar Vath, on the eastern side of the Great Yahan Canal. Returning at the sunset hour, and following the estrade of purple marble beside the water, they had nearly reached the mile-long bridge that would take them back to the modern city, Ignar Luth, in which were the terrestrial consulates and shipping offices and hotels. It was the Martian hour of worship, when the Ahai gather in their roofless temples to implore the return of the passing sun. Like the throbbing of feverish metal pulses, a sound of ceaseless and innumerable gongs punctured the thin air. The incredibly crooked streets were almost empty, and only a few barges, with immense rhomboidal sails of mauve and scarlet, crawled to and fro on the sombre green waters. The light waned with visible swiftness behind the top-heavy towers and pagoda-angled pyramids of Ignar Luth. The chill of the coming night began to pervade the shadows of the huge solar gnomons that lined the canal at frequent intervals. The querulous clangors of the gongs died suddenly in Ignar Vath, and left a weirdly whispering silence. The buildings of the immemorial city bulked enormous upon a sky of blackish emerald that was already thronged with icy stars. A medley of untraceable exotic odors was wafted through the twilight. The perfume was redolent of alien mystery, and it thrilled and troubled the earthmen, who became silent as they approached the bridge, feeling the oppression of eerie strangeness that gathered from all sides in the thickening gloom. More deeply than in daylight, they apprehended the muffled breathings and hidden, tortuous movements of a life forever inscrutable to the children of other planets. The void between Earth and Mars had been traversed, but who could cross the evolutionary gulf between Earthman and Martian? The people were friendly enough in their taciturn way. They had tolerated the intrusion of terrestrials, had permitted commerce between the worlds. Their languages had been mastered, their history studied by terrene savants, but it seemed that there could be no real interchange of ideas. Their civilization had grown old in diverse complexity before the foundering of Lemuria. Its sciences, arts, religions were hoary with inconceivable age, and even the simplest customs were the fruit of alien forces and conditions. At that moment, faced with the precariousness of their situation, Haynes and Chandler felt an actual terror of the unknown world that surrounded them with its measureless antiquity. They quickened their paces. The wide pavement that bordered the canal was seemingly deserted, and the light, railless bridge itself was guarded only by the ten colossal statues of Martian heroes that loomed in warlike attitudes before the beginning of the first aerial span. The earthmen were somewhat startled, when a living figure, little less gigantic than the carven images, 
detached itself from their deepening shadows, and came forward with mighty strides. The figure, nearly ten feet in height, was taller by a full yard than the average Ahai, but presented the familiar conformation of massively bulging chest and bony, many-angled limbs. The head was featured with high-flaring ears and pit-like nostrils that narrowed and expanded visibly in the twilight. The eyes were sunken in profound orbits, and were wholly invisible, save for tiny reddish sparks that appeared to burn suspended in the sockets of a skull. According to native custom, this bizarre personage was altogether nude, but a kind of circlet around the neck, a flat wire of curiously beaten silver, indicated that he was the servant of some noble lord. Haynes and Chandler were astounded, for they had never before seen a Martian of such prodigious stature. The apparition, it was plain, desired to intercept them. He paused before them on the pavement of blockless marble. They were even more amazed by the weirdly booming voice, reverberant as that of some enormous frog, with which he began to address them. In spite of the interminably guttural tones, the heavy slurring of certain vowels and consonants, they realized that the words were those of human language. "'My master summons you,' bellowed the Colossus. "'Your plight is known to him. He will help you liberally, in return for a certain assistance which you can render him. Come with me.' "'This sounds peremptory,' murmured Haynes. "'Shall we go?' Probably it's some charitable Ahai prince who has gotten wind of our reduced circumstances. Wonder what the game is. I suggest that we follow the guide, said Chandler eagerly. His proposition sounds like the first chapter of a thriller. All right, said Haynes to the towering giant. Lead us to your master. With strides that were moderated to match those of the earthmen, the Colossus led them away from the hero-guarded bridge, and into the greenish-purple gloom that had inundated Ignarvath. Beyond the pavement, an alley yawned like a high-mounted cavern between lightless mansions and warehouses, whose broad balconies and jutting roofs were almost conterminous in mid-air. The alley was deserted, and the Ahai moved like an overgrown shadow through the dusk, and paused shadow-like in a deep and lofty doorway. Halting at his heels, Chandler and Haynes were aware of a shrill metallic strider, made by the opening of the door, which, like all Martian doors, was drawn upward in the manner of a medieval portcullis. Their guide was silhouetted on the saffron light that poured from bosses of radioactive minerals set in the walls and roof of a circular antechamber. He preceded them, according to custom, and following, they saw that the room was unoccupied. The door descended behind them, without apparent agency or manipulation. To Chandler, gazing about the windowless chamber, there came the indefinable alarm that is sometimes felt in a closed space. Under the circumstances, there seemed to be no reason to apprehend danger or treachery, but all at once he was filled with a wild longing to escape. Haynes, on his part, was wondering rather perplexedly why the inner door was closed, and why the master of the house had not already appeared to receive them. Somehow, the house impressed him as being uninhabited. There was something empty and desolate in the silence that surrounded them. The Ahai, standing in the centre of the bare, unfurnished room, had faced about as if to address the earthmen. His eyes glowered inscrutably from their deep orbits, his mouth opened, showing double rows of snaggy teeth, but no sound appeared to issue from his moving lips, and the notes that he emitted must have belonged to that scale of overtones, beyond human audition, of which the Martian voice is capable. No doubt the mechanism of the door had been actuated by similar overtones, and now, as if in response, the entire floor of the chamber, wrought of dark, seamless metal, began to descend slowly, as if dropping into a great pit. Haynes and Chandler, startled, saw the saffron lights receding above them. They, together with the giant, were going down into shadow and darkness in a broad, circular shaft. There was a ceaseless grating and shrieking of metal, 
setting their teeth on edge with its insupportable pitch. Like a narrowing cluster of yellow stars, the lights grew dim and small above them. Still, their descent continued, and they could no longer discern each other's faces, or the face of the Ahai in the ebon blackness through which they fell. Haynes and Chandler were beset with a thousand doubts and suspicions, and they began to wonder if they had been somewhat rash in accepting the Ahai's invitation. "'Where are you taking us?' said Haynes bluntly. "'Does your master live underground?' "'We go to my master.' replied the Martian with cryptic finality. He awaits you. The cluster of lights had become a single star, had dwindled and faded as if in the night of infinity. There was a sense of irredeemable depth, as if they had gone down to the very core of that alien world. The strangeness of their situation filled the earthmen with increasing disquiet. They had committed themselves to a clueless mystery— that began to savour of menace and peril. Nothing was to be learned from their conductor. No retreat was possible, and they were both weaponless. The strident shrieking of metal slowed, and sank to a sullen whine. The earthmen were dazzled by the ruddy brilliance that broke upon them through a circle of slender pillars that had replaced the walls of the shaft. An instant more, while they went down through the flooding light, and then the floor beneath them became stationary. They saw that it was now part of the floor of a great cavern, lit by crimson hemispheres embedded in the roof. The cavern was circular, with passages that ramified from it in every direction, like the spokes of a wheel from the hub. Many Martians, no less gigantic than the guide, were passing swiftly to and fro, as if intent on enigmatic errands. The strange, muted clangors and thunder-like rumblings of hidden machinery throbbed in the air, vibrated in the shaken floor. "'What do you suppose we've gotten into?' murmured Chandler. "'We must be many miles below the surface. I've never heard of anything like this, except in some of the old Ahai myths. This place might be Ravamos, the Martian underworld, where Valthum, the evil god, is supposed to lie asleep for a thousand years—' amid his worshippers. The guide had overheard him. "'You have come to Ravamos,' he boomed portentously. "'Valthum is awake, and will not sleep again for another thousand years. It is he that has summoned you, and I take you now to the chamber of audience.' Haines and Chandler, dumbfounded beyond measure, followed the Martian from the strange elevator toward one of the ramifying passages. There must be some sort of foolery on foot, muttered Haynes. I've heard of Valthum, too, but he's a mere superstition, like Satan. The up-to-date Martians don't believe in him nowadays, though I have heard that there is still a sort of devil cult among the pariahs and low-castes. I'll wager that some noble is trying to stage a revolution against the reigning emperor, Sycor, and has established his quarters underground. That sounds reasonable, Chandler agreed. A revolutionist might call himself Valthum. The trick would be true to the Ahai psychology. They have a taste for high-sounding metaphors and fantastic titles. Both became silent, feeling a sort of awe before the vastness of the cavern world whose litten corridors reached away on every hand. The surmises they had voiced began to appear inadequate. The improbable was verified. The fabulous had become the factual— and was engulfing them more and more. The far, mysterious clangors, it seemed, were of preternormal origin. The hurrying giants who passed athwart the chamber with unknown burdens conveyed a sense of supernatural activity and enterprise. Haynes and Chandler were both tall and stalwart, but the Martians about them were all nine or ten feet in height. Some were closer to eleven feet, and all were muscled in proportion. Their faces bore a look of immense, mummy-like age, incongruous with their agility and vigour. Haynes and Chandler were led along a corridor, from whose arched roof the red hemispheres, doubtless formed of artificially radioactive metal, glared down at intervals like imprisoned suns. Leaping from step to step, they descended a flight of giant stairs, with the Martian striding easily before them. 
He paused at the open portals of a chamber, hewn in the dark and basic adamantine stone. Enter, he said, and withdrew his bulk to let them pass. The chamber was small but lofty, its roof rising like the interior of a spire. Its floor and walls were stained by the bloody violet beams of a single hemisphere, far up in the narrowing dome. The place was vacant, and furnished only with a curious tripod of black metal, fixed in the centre of the floor. The tripod bore an oval block of crystal, and from this block, as if from a frozen pool, a frozen flower lifted, opening petals of smooth, heavy ivory, that received a rosy tinge from the strange light. Block, flower, tripod, it seemed, were the parts of a piece of sculpture. Crossing the threshold, the earthmen became instantly aware that the throbbing thunders and cave-reverberant clangors had ebbed away in profound silence. It was as if they had entered a sanctuary, from which all sound was excluded by a mystic barrier. The portals remained open behind them. Their guide, apparently, had withdrawn. But, somehow, they felt that they were not alone, and it seemed that hidden eyes were peering upon them from the blank walls. Perturbed and puzzled, they stared at the pale flower, noting the seven tongue-like petals that curled softly outward from a perforated heart like a small censer. Chandler began to wonder if it were really a carving, or an actual flower that had been mineralized through Martian chemistry. Then, startlingly, a voice appeared to issue from the blossom, a voice incredibly sweet, clear, and sonorous, whose tones, perfectly articulate, were neither those of Ahai nor Earthman. I, who speak, am the entity known as Valthum, said the voice. Be not surprised or frightened. It is my desire to befriend you, in return for a consideration which, I hope, you will not find impossible. First of all, however, I must explain certain matters that perplex you. No doubt you have heard the popular legends concerning me, and have dismissed them as mere superstitions. Like all myths, they are partly true and partly false. I am neither god nor demon, but a being who came to Mars from another universe in former cycles. Though I am not a mortal— my span of life is far longer than that of any creature evolved by the worlds of your solar system. I am governed by alien biologic laws, with periods of alternate slumber and wakefulness that involve centuries. It is virtually true, as the Ahais believe, that I sleep for a thousand years, and remain conscious continually for another thousand. At a time when your ancestors were still the blood brothers of the ape, I fled from my own world to this intercosmic exile, banished by implacable foes. The Martians say that I fell from heaven like a fiery meteor, and the myth interprets the descent of my ethership. I found a matured civilization, immensely inferior, however, to that from which I came. The kings and hierarchs of the planet would have driven me away, but I gathered a few adherents, arming them with weapons superior to those of Martian science, and after a great war, I established myself firmly and gained other followers. I did not care to conquer Mars, but withdrew to this cavern world in which I have dwelt ever since with my adherents. On these, for their faithfulness, I conferred a longevity that is almost equal to my own. To ensure this longevity, I have also given them the gift of a slumber corresponding to mine. They sleep and wake with me. We have maintained this order of existence for many ages. Seldom have I meddled in the doings of the surface-dwellers. They, however, have converted me into an evil god or spirit, though evil to me is a word without meaning. I am the possessor of many senses and faculties unknown to you or to the Martians. My perceptions at will be extended over large areas of space, or even time. Thus I learned your predicament, and I have called you here with the hope of obtaining your consent to a certain plan. To be brief, I have grown weary of Mars, 
a senile world that draws near to death, and I wish to establish myself in a younger planet. The earth would serve my purpose well. Even now my followers are building the new ethership in which I propose to make the voyage. I do not wish to repeat the experience of my arrival in Mars by landing among a people ignorant of me, and perhaps universally hostile. You, being earthmen, could prepare many of your fellows for my coming, could gather proselytes to serve me. Your reward, and theirs, would be the elixir of longevity. And I have many other gifts. The precious gems and metals that you prize so highly. Also, there are the flowers, whose perfume is more seductive and persuasive than all else. Inhaling that perfume, you will deem that even gold is worthless in comparison. And having breathed it, you, and all others of your kind, will serve me gladly. The voice ended, leaving a vibration that thrilled the nerves of the listeners for some moments. It was like the cessation of a sweet, bewitching music, with overtones of evil scarcely to be detected above the subtle melody. It bemused the senses of Haynes and Chandler, lulling their astonishment into a sort of dreamy acceptance of the voice and its declarations. Chandler made an effort to throw off the enchantment. "'Where are you?' he said. "'And how are we to know that you have told us the truth?' "'I am near you,' said the voice. "'But I do not choose at this time to reveal myself. "'The proof of all that I have stated, however—' will be revealed to you in due course. Before you is one of the flowers of which I have spoken. It is not, as you have perhaps surmised, a work of sculpture, but is an antholite, or fossil blossom, brought with others of the same kind, from the world to which I am native. Though scentless at ordinary temperatures, it yields a perfume under the application of heat. As to the perfume, you must judge for yourselves. The air of the chamber had been neither warm nor cold. Now the earthmen were conscious of a change, as if hidden fires had been ignited. The warmth seemed to issue from the metal tripod and the block of crystal, beating upon Haynes and Chandler like the radiation of some invisible tropic sun. It became ardent, but not insupportable. At the same time, insidiously, the terrestrials began to perceive the perfume which was like nothing they had ever inhaled. An elusive thread of other-world sweetness, it curled about their nostrils, deepening slowly but acceleratively to a spicy flood, and seeming to mix a pleasant coolness as a foliage-shaded air with the fervent heat. Chandler was more vividly affected than Haines by the curious hallucinations that followed, though, apart from this differing degree of verisimilitude, their impressions were oddly alike. It seemed to Chandler, all at once, that the perfume was no longer wholly alien to him, but was something that he had remembered from other times and places. He tried to recall the circumstances of this prior familiarity, and his recollections, drawn up as if from the sealed reservoirs of an old existence, took the form of an actual scene that replaced the cavern chamber about him. Haines was no part of this scene, but had disappeared from his ken, and the roof and walls had vanished, giving place to an open forest of fern-like trees. Their slim, pearly boles and tender frondage swam in a luminous glory, like an Eden filled with the primal daybreak. The trees were tall, but taller still than they were the flowers that poured down from waving senses of carnal white and overwhelming and voluptuous perfume. Chandler felt an indescribable ecstasy. It seemed that he had gone back to the fountains of time in the first world, and had drawn into himself inexhaustible life, youth, and vigour, from the glorious light and fragrance that had steeped his senses to their last nerve. The ecstasy heightened, and he heard a singing that appeared to emanate from the mouths of the blossoms— a singing as of Houris, that turned his blood to a golden filter-brew. In the delirium of his faculties, the sound was identified with the blossom's odour. 
It rose in giddying rapture insuppressible, and he thought that the very flowers soared like flames, and the trees aspired toward them, and he himself was a blown fire that towered with the singing to attain some ultimate pinnacle of delight. The whole world swept upward in a tide of exultation, and it seemed that the singing turned to articulate sound, and Chandler heard the words, I am Valthum, and thou art mine from the beginning of worlds, and shalt be mine until the end. He awoke under circumstances that might almost have been a continuation of the visionary imagery he had beheld under the influence of the perfume. He lay on a bed of short, curling grass, the colour of verd antique, with enormous tiger-hued blossoms leaning about him, and a soft brilliance as of amber sunset filling his eyes between the trailing boughs of strange crimson-fruited trees. Tardily, as he grew cognizant of his surroundings, he realized that the voice of Haines had awakened him, and saw that Haines was sitting near at hand on the curious sward. Say, aren't you ever coming out of it? Chandler heard the crisp query as if through a film of dreams. His thoughts were bewildered, and his memories were oddly mixed with the pseudo-recollections, drawn as in from other lives, that had risen before him in his delirium. It was hard to disentangle the false from the real, but sanity returned to him by degrees, and with it came a feeling of profound exhaustion and nerve-weariness, which warned him that he had sojourned in the spurious paradise of a potent drug. "'Where are we now, and how did we get here?' he asked. "'As far as I can tell,' returned Haynes, "'we're in a sort of underground garden.' Some of those big ahis must have brought us here after we succumbed to the perfume. I resisted the influence longer than you did, and I remember hearing the voice of Valthum as I went under. The voice said that he would give us forty-eight hours terrestrial time in which to think over his proposition. If we accept, he'll send us back to Ignar with a fabulous sum of money and a supply of those narcotic flowers. Chandler was now fully awake. He and Haynes proceeded to discuss their situation, but were unable to arrive at any definite conclusion. The whole affair was no less baffling than extraordinary. An unknown entity, naming himself after the Martian devil, had invited them to become his terrestrial agents or emissaries. Apart from the spreading of a propaganda designed to facilitate his advent on earth, they were to introduce an alien drug that was no less powerful than morphine cocaine or marijuana, and, in all likelihood, no less pernicious. "'What if we refuse?' said Chandler. Volthum said that it would be impossible to let us return in that case, but he didn't specify our fate, merely hinted that it would be unpleasant. "'Well, Haynes, we've got to think our way out of this, if we can. I'm afraid that thinking won't help us much. We must be many miles below the surface of Mars.' The mechanism of the elevators, in all probability, is something that no earthman could ever learn. Before Chandler could offer any comment, one of the giant ahis appeared among the trees, carrying two of the curious Martian utensils known as culpi. These were large platters of semi-metallic earthenware, fitted with removable cups and rotary carafes, in which an entire meal of liquids and solids could be served. The Ahai set the platters on the ground before Haynes and Chandler, and then waited, immobile and inscrutable. The earthmen, conscious of a ravening hunger, addressed themselves to the foodstuffs, which had been moulded or cut into various geometric forms. Though possibly of synthetic origin, the foods were delicious, and the earthmen consumed them to the last cone and lozenge, and washed them down with a vinous garnet-coloured liquor from the carafes. When they had finished, their attendant spoke for the first time. "'It is the will of Valthun that you should wander throughout Ravamos, and behold the wonders of the caverns. You are at liberty to roam alone and unattended, or, if you prefer, I shall serve you as a guide. My name is Tarvo Shai, and I am ready to answer any questions that you ask. Also, you may dismiss me at will.' 
Haynes and Chandler, after a brief discussion, decided to accept this offer of Ciceronich. They followed the Ahai through the garden, whose extent was hard to determine because of the misty amber luminance that filled it, as if with radiant atoms, giving the impression of unbounded space. The light, they learned from Tarvo Shai, was emitted by the lofty roof and walls beneath the action of an electromagnetic force of wavelength, shorter even than the cosmic rays, and it possessed all the essential qualities of sunlight. The garden was composed of weird plants and blossoms, many of which were exotic to Mars, and had perhaps been imported from the alien solar system to which Valthum was native. Some of the flowers were enormous mats of petals, like a hundred orchids joined into one. There were cruciform trees, hung with fantastically long and variegated leaves that resembled heraldic pennons or scrolls of cryptic writing, and others were branched and fruited in outlandish ways. Beyond the garden, they entered a world of open passages and chambered caverns, some of which were filled with machinery, or with storage vats and urns. In others, immense ingots of precious and semi-precious metals were piled, and gigantic coffers spilled their flashing gems as if to tempt the earthmen. Most of the machines were in action, though untended, and Haynes and Chandler were told that they could run in this manner for centuries or millenaries. Their operation was inexplicable even to Haynes, with his expert knowledge of mechanics. Volthum and his people had gone beyond the spectrum, and beyond the audible vibrations of sound, and had compelled the hidden forces of the universe to appear and obey them. Everywhere there was a loud beating as of metal pulses, a matter as of pristine afrites and servile iron titans. Valves opened and shut with a harsh clangor. There were rooms pillared with strident dynamos, and others where groups of mysteriously levitated spheres were spinning silently, like suns and planets in the void of space. They climbed a flight of stairs, colossal as the steps of the Pyramid of Cheops to a higher level. Haynes, in a dreamlike fashion, seemed to remember descending these stairs— and thought they were now nearing the chamber in which he and Chandler had been interviewed by the hidden entity, Valthum. He was not sure, however, and Tarvo Shai led them through a series of vast rooms that appeared to serve the purpose of laboratories. In most of these there were age-old colossi, bending like alchemists over furnaces that burned with cold fire, and retorts that fumed with queer threads and ropes of vapour. One room was untenanted, and was furnished with no apparatus, other than three great bottles of clear, uncoloured glass, taller than a tall man, and having somewhat the form of Roman amphoras. To all appearances the bottles were empty, but they were closed with double-handed stoppers that a human being could scarcely have lifted. "'What are these bottles?' Chandler asked the guide. They are the bottles of sleep, said the Ahai, with the solemn and sententious air of a lecturer. Each of them is filled with a rare, invisible gas. When the time comes for the thousand-year slumber of Valthum, the gases are released, and, mingling, they pervade the atmosphere of Ravamos, even to the lowest cavern, inducing sleep for a similar period in us who serve Valthum. Time no longer exists, and the ons are no more than instants for the sleepers, and they awaken only at the hour of Valthum's awakening. Haynes and Chandler, filled with curiosity, were prompted to ask many questions, but most of these were answered vaguely and ambiguously by Tarvo Shai, who seemed eager to continue his Ciceronage through other and ulterior parts of Ravamos. He could tell them nothing about the chemical nature of the gases, and Volthum himself, if the veracity of Tarvo Shai could be trusted, was a mystery even to his own followers, most of whom had never beheld him in person. Tarvo Shai conducted the earthmen from the room of bottles and down a long, straight cavern, wholly deserted, where a rumbling and pounding as of innumerable engines came to meet them. 
The sound broke upon them like a Niagara of evil thunders when they emerged finally in a sort of pillared gallery that surrounded a mile-wide gulf illumined by the terrible flaring of tongued fires that rose incessantly from its depths. It was as if they looked down into some infernal circle of angry light and tortured shadow. Far beneath, they saw a colossal structure of curved and glittering girders, like the strangely articulated bones of a metal behemoth outstretched along the bottom of the pit. Around it, furnaces belched like the flaming mouths of dragons. Tremendous cranes went up and down perpetually, with the motion as of long-necked plesiosaurs, and the figures of giants, red as labouring demons, moved through the sinister glare. "'They build the ether ship in which Valthum will voyage to the earth,' said Tarvo Shai. "'When all is ready, the ship will blast its way to the surface by means of atomic disintegrators. The very stone will melt before it like vapour. Ignaluth, which lies directly above, will be consumed as if the central fires of the planet had broken loose.' Haines and Chandler, appalled, could offer no rejoinder. More and more they were stunned by the mystery and magnitude, the terror and menace, of this unsuspected cavern world. Here they felt a malign power, armed with untold arcana of science, was plotting some baleful conquest. A doom that might involve the peopled worlds of the system was being incubated in secrecy and darkness. They, it seemed, were helpless to escape and give warning— and their own fate was shadowed by insoluble gloom. A gust of hot, metallic vapour mounting from the abyss burned corrosively in their nostrils as they peered from the gallery's verge. Ill and giddy, they drew back. "'What lies beyond this gulf?' Chandler inquired, when his sickness had passed. "'The gallery leads to outer caverns, little used.' which conduct on the dry bed of an ancient underground river. This riverbed, running for many miles, emerges in a sunken desert, far below sea level, and lying to the west of Ignar. The earthmen started at this information, which seemed to offer them a possible avenue of escape. Both, however, thought it well to dissemble their interest. Pretending fatigue, they asked the Ahai to lead them to some chamber in which they could rest a while, and discuss Valthum's proposition at leisure. Tarvo Shai, professing himself at their service in all ways, took them to a small room beyond the laboratories. It was a sort of bedchamber, with two tiers of couches along the walls. These couches, from their length, were evidently designed to accommodate the giant Martians. Here Haines and Chandler were left alone by Tarvo Shai, who had tacitly inferred that his presence was no longer needed. "'Well,' said Chandler, "'it looks as if there were a chance of escape if we can only reach that riverbed. I took careful note of the corridors we followed on our return from the gallery. It should be easy enough, unless we're being watched without our knowledge. The only trouble is, it's too easy. But anyway, we can try. Anything would be better than waiting around like this. After what we've seen and heard—' I'm beginning to believe that Volthum really is the devil, even though he doesn't claim to be. Those ten-foot ahis give me the creeps, said Chandler. I can readily believe they are a million years old, or thereabouts. Enormous longevity would account for their size and stature. Most animals that survive beyond the normal term of years become gigantic, and it stands to reason that these Martian men would develop in a similar fashion. It was a simple matter to retrace their route to the pillared gallery that encircled the great abyss. For most of the distance they had only to follow a main corridor, and the sound of the rumbling engineries alone would have guided them. They met no one in the passages, and the Ahai that they saw through open portals in laboratory rooms were deeply intent on enigmatic chemistries. "'I don't like this,' muttered Haines. "'It's too good to be true.' I'm not so sure of that. Perhaps it simply hasn't occurred to Valthum and his followers that we might try to escape. After all, we know nothing about their psychology. Keeping close to the inner wall, behind the thick pillars, 
they followed the long, slowly winding gallery on the right hand. It was lit only by the shuddering reflection of the tall flames in the pit below. Moving thus, they were hidden from the view of the labouring giants, if any of these had happened to look upward. Poisonous vapours were blown toward them at intervals, and they felt the hellish heat of the furnaces, and the clangors of welding, the thunder of obscure machineries, beat upon them, as they went with reverberations that were like hammer-blows. By degrees they rounded the gulf, and came at last to its further side, where the gallery curved backward in its return toward the entrance corridor. Here, in the shadows, they discerned the unlit mouth of a large cavern that radiated from the gallery. This cavern, they surmised, would lead them toward the sunken river-bed of which Tarvo Shai had spoken. Haines, luckily, carried a small pocket-flash, and he turned its ray into the cavern, revealing a straight corridor with numerous minor intersections. Night and silence seemed to swallow them at a gulp, and the clangors of the toiling titans were quickly and mysteriously muted as they hurried along the empty hall. The roof of the corridor was fitted with metal hemispheres, now dark and rayless, that had formerly served to illuminate it in the same fashion as the other halls of Ravamos. A fine dust was stirred by the feet of the earthmen as they fled, and soon the air grew chill and thin, losing the mild and somewhat humid warmth of the central caverns. It was plain, as Tarvo Shai had told them, that these outer passages were seldom used or visited. It seemed that they went on for a mile or more in that Tartarian corridor. Then the walls began to straighten, the floor roughened and fell steeply. There were no more cross-passages, and hope quickened in the earthmen as they saw plainly that they had gone beyond the artificial caverns into a natural tunnel. The tunnel soon widened, and its floor became a series of shelf formations. By means of these, they descended into a profound abyss that was obviously the river channel of which Tarvo Shai had told them. The small flashlight barely sufficed to reveal the full extent of this underground waterway, in which there was no longer even a trickle of its prehistoric flood. The bottom, deeply eroded and riffled with sharp boulders, was more than a hundred yards wide, and the roof arched into gloom irresoluble. Exploring the bottom tentatively for a little distance, Haines and Chandler determined by its gradual falling the direction in which the stream had flowed. Following this downward course, they set out resolutely, praying that they would find no impassable barriers, no precipices of former cataracts to impede or prevent their egress in the desert. Apart from the danger of pursuit, they apprehended no other difficulties than these. The obscure windings of the bottom brought them first to one side, and then to the other, as they groped along. In places the cavern widened, and they came to far recessive beaches, terraced and marked by the ebbing waters. High up on some of the beaches there were singular formations resembling a type of mammoth fungi grown in caverns beneath the modern canals. These formations, in the shape of Herculean clubs, arose often to a height of three feet or more. Haines, impressed by their metallic sparkling beneath the light as he flashed it upon them, conceived a curious idea. Though Chandler protested against the delay, he climbed the shelving to examine a group of them more closely, and found, as he had suspected, that they were not living growths, but were petrified, heavily impregnated with minerals. He tried to break one of them loose, but it resisted all his tuggings. However, by hammering it with a loose fragment of stone, he succeeded in fracturing the base of the club, and it toppled over with an iron tinkling. The thing was very heavy, with a mace-like swelling at the upper end, and would make a substantial weapon in case of need. He broke off a second club for Chandler, and thus armed, they resumed their flight. It was impossible to calculate the distance that they covered. The channel turned and twisted, it pitched abruptly in places, and was often broken into ledges that glittered with alien ores, or were stained with weirdly brilliant oxides of azure, vermilion, and yellow. 
The men floundered ankle-deep in pits of sable sand, or climbed laboriously over dam-like barricades of rusty boulders, huge as piled menus. Ever and anon, they found themselves listening feverishly for any sound that would betoken pursuit. But silence brimmed the Sumerian channel, troubled only by the clatter and crunch of their own footsteps. At last, with incredulous eyes, they saw before them the dawning of a pale light in the further depths, arch by dismal arch, like the throat of Avernus lit by nether fires, the enormous cavern became visible. For one exultant moment, they thought that they were nearing the channel mouth, but the light grew with an eerie and startling brilliance, like the flaming of furnaces rather than sunshine falling into a cave. Implacable, it crept along the walls and bottom, and dimmed the ineffectual beam of Haines's torch as it fell on the dazzled earthmen. Ominous, incomprehensible, the light seemed to watch and threaten. They stood amazed and hesitant, not knowing whether to go on or retreat. Then, from the flaming air, a voice spoke, as if in gentle reproof, the sweet, sonorous voice of Volthum. Go back as you came, O earthlings. None may leave Ravamos without my knowledge, or against my will. Behold, I have sent my guardians to escort you. The lit air had been empty to all seeming, and the riverbed was peopled only by the grotesque masses and squat shadows of boulders. Now, with the ceasing of the voice, Haines and Chandler saw before them, at a distance of ten feet, the instant apparition of two creatures that were comparable to nothing in the whole known zoology of Mars or Earth. They rose from the rocky bottom to the height of giraffes, with shortish legs that were vaguely similar to those of Chinese dragons, and elongated spiral necks like the middle coils of great anacondas. Their heads were triple-faced, and they might have been the tree-murty of some infernal world. It seemed that each face was eyeless, with tongue-shapen flames issuing voluminously from deep orbits beneath the slanted brows. Flames also poured in a ceaseless vomit from the gaping gargoyle mouths. From the head of each monster a triple comb of vermilion flared aloft in sharp serrations, glowing terribly, and both of them were bearded with crimson scrolls. Their necks and arching spines were fringed with sword-long blades that diminished into rows of daggers on the tapering tails, and their whole bodies, as well as this fearsome armament, appeared to burn as if they had just issued from a fiery furnace. A palpable heat emanated from these hellish chimeras, and the earthmen retreated hastily before the flying splotches, like the blown tatters of a conflagration, that broke loose from their ever-jetting eye-flames and mouth-flames. "'My God! These monsters are supernatural!' cried Chandler, shaken and appalled. Haines, though palpably startled, was inclined to a more orthodox explanation. "'There must be some sort of television behind this,' he maintained, "'though I can't imagine how it's possible to project three-dimensional images and also create the sensation of heat. I had an idea somehow that our escape was being watched. He picked up a heavy fragment of metallic stone and heaved it at one of the glowing chimeras. Aimed unerringly, the fragment struck the frontal brow of the monster, and seemed to explode in a shower of sparks at the moment of impact. The creature flared and swelled prodigiously, and a fiery hissing became audible. Haines and Chandler— were driven back by a wave of scorching heat, and their wardens followed them pace by pace on the rough bottom. Abandoning all hope of escape, they returned toward Ravamos, dogged by the monsters, as they toiled through yielding sand and over the ledges and riffles. Reaching the point where they had descended into the river channel, they found its upper stretches guarded by two more of these terrific dragons. There was no other recourse than to climb the lofty shelves into the acclivitous tunnel. Weary with their long flight and enervated by a dull despair, they found themselves again in the outer hall, 
with two of their guardians now preceding them like an escort of infernal honour. Both were stunned by a realization of the awful and mysterious powers of Valthum, and even Haines had become silent, though his brain was still busy with a futile and desperate probing. Chandler, more sensitive, suffered all the chills and terrors that his literary imagination could inflict upon him under the circumstances. They came at length to the columned gallery that circled the vast abyss. Midway in this gallery, the chimeras who preceded the earthmen turned upon them suddenly with a fearsome belching of flames, and, as they paused in their intimidation, the two behind continued to advance toward them with a hissing as of satanic salamanders. In that narrowing space the heat was like a furnace blast, and the columns afforded no shelter. From the gulf below, where the Martian titans toiled perpetually, a stupefying thunder rose to assail them at the same time, and noxious fumes were blown toward them in writhing coils. "'Looks as if they're going to drive us into the gulf,' Haines panted, as he sought to draw breath in the fiery air. He and Chandler reeled before the looming monsters, and even as he spoke, two more of these hellish apparitions flamed into being at the gallery's verge, as if they had risen from the gulf to render impossible that fatal plunge which alone could have offered an escape from the others. Half swooning, the earthmen were dimly aware of a change in the menacing chimeras. The flaming bodies dulled and shrank and darkened. The heat lessened. The fires died down in the mouths and eye-pits. At the same time, the creatures drew closer, fawning loathsomely, and revealing whitish tongues and eyeballs of jet. The tongues seemed to divide. They grew paler. They were like flower petals that Haynes and Chandler had seen somewhere. The breath of the chimeras, like a soft gale, was upon the faces of the earthmen, and the breath was a cool and spicy perfume that they had known before, the narcotic perfume that had overcome them following their audience with the hidden master of Ravenous. Moment by moment the monsters turned to prodigious blossoms, the pillars of the gallery became gigantic trees in a glamour of primal dawn, the thunders of the pit were lulled to a far-off sighing, as of gentle seas on Edenic shores. The teeming terrors of Ravamos, the threat of a shadowy doom, were as things that had never been. Haines and Chandler, oblivious, were lost in the paradise of the unknown drug. Haines, awakening darkly, found that he lay on the stone floor in the circling colonnade. He was alone, and the fiery chimeras had vanished. The shadows of his opiate swoon were roughly dissipated by the clangors that still mounted from the neighboring gulf. With growing consternation and horror, he recalled everything that had happened. He arose giddily to his feet, peering about in the semi-twilight of the gallery for some trace of his companion. The petrified fungus club that Chandler had carried, as well as his own weapon, were lying where they had fallen from the fingers of the overpowered men. But Chandler was gone, and Haines shouted aloud with no other response than the eerily prolonged echoes of the deep arcade. Impelled by an urgent feeling that he must find Chandler without delay, he recovered his heavy mace and started along the gallery. It seemed that the weapon could be of little use against the preternatural servants of Valthum, but somehow the metallic weight of the bludgeon reassured him. Nearing the great corridor that ran to the core of Ravamos, Haines was overjoyed when he saw Chandler coming to meet him. Before he could call out a cheery greeting, he heard Chandler's voice. "'Hello, Bob. This is my first televisual appearance in tridimensional form. Pretty good, isn't it? I'm in the private laboratory of Valthum.' and Volthum has persuaded me to accept his proposition. As soon as you've made up your mind to do likewise, we'll return to Ignar with full instructions regarding our terrestrial mission, and funds amounting to a million dollars each. Think it over, and you'll see that there's nothing else to do. When you've decided to join us, follow the main corridor through Ravamos, 
Tarvo Shai will meet you and bring you into the laboratory. At the conclusion of this astounding speech, the figure of Chandler, without seeming to wait for any reply from Haynes, stepped lightly to the gallery's verge and floated out among the wreathing vapours. There, smiling upon Haynes, it vanished like a phantom. To say that Haynes was thunderstruck would be putting it feebly indeed. In all verisimilitude, the figure and voice had been those of the flesh-and-blood Chandler. He felt an eerie chill before the thaumaturgy of Volthoom, which could bring about a projection so veridical as to deceive him in this manner. He was shocked and horrified beyond measure by Chandler's capitulation, but somehow it did not occur to him that any imposture had been practised. "'That devil has gotten him,' thought Haynes, "'but I'd never have believed it. I didn't think he was that kind of a fellow at all. Sorrow, anger, bafflement, and amazement filled him alternately as he strode along the gallery. Nor, as he entered the inner hall, was he able to decide on any clearly effective course of action. To yield, as Chandler had avowedly done, was unthinkably repugnant to him. If he could see Chandler again, perhaps he could persuade him to change his mind— and resume an unflinching opposition to the alien entity. It was a degradation, and a treason to humankind, for any earthman to lend himself to the more than doubtful schemes of Valthoom. Apart from the projected invasion of earth, and the spread of the strange, subtle narcotic, there was the ruthless destruction of Ignar Luth that would occur, when Valthoom's ether-vessel should blast its way to the planet's surface. It was his duty— and Chandler's, to prevent all this, if prevention were humanly possible. Somehow, they, or he alone if necessary, must stem the cavern-incubated menace. Bluntly honest himself, there was no thought of temporizing, even for an instant. Still carrying the mineraloid club, he strode on for several minutes, his brain preoccupied with the dire problem, but powerless to arrive at any solution. Through a habit of observation more or less automatic with the veteran space pilot, he peered through the doorways of the various rooms that he passed, where the cupels and retorts of a foreign chemistry were tended by age-old colossi. Then, without premeditation, he came to the deserted room in which were the three mighty receptacles that Tarvo Shai had called the bottles of sleep. He remembered what the Ahai had said concerning their contents. In a flash of desperate inspiration, Haynes boldly entered the room, hoping that he was not under the surveillance of Valthoom at the moment. There was no time for reflection or other delay, if he were to execute the audacious plan that had occurred to him. Taller than his head, with the swelling contours of great amphoras and seemingly empty, the bottles glimmered in the still light, like the phantom of a bulbous giant— he saw his own distorted image in the upward-curving glass as he neared the foremost one. There was but one thought, one resolution in his mind. Whatever the cost, he must smash the bottles, whose released gases would pervade Ravamos and plunge the followers of Valthum, if not Valthum himself, into a thousand-year term of slumber. He and Chandler, no doubt, would be doomed to share the slumber— and for them, unfortified by the secret elixir of immortality, there would be, in all likelihood, no awakening. But under the circumstances, it was better so, and, by the sacrifice, a thousand years of grace would be accorded to the two planets. Now was his opportunity, and it seemed improbable that there would ever be another one. He lifted the petrified fungus mace, he swung it back in a swift arc, and struck with all his strength at the bellying glass. There was a gong-like clangor, sonorous and prolonged, and radiating cracks appeared from top to bottom of the huge receptacle. At the second blow, it broke inward with a shrill, appalling sound that was almost an articulate shriek, and Haines's face was fanned for an instant by a cool breath, gentle as a woman's sigh. Holding his breath to avoid the inhalation of the gas, he turned to the next bottle. It shattered at the first stroke, and again he felt a soft sighing that followed upon the cleavage. A voice of thunder seemed to fill the room 
as he raised his weapon to assail the third bottle. Fool! You have doomed yourself and your fellow earthmen by this deed. The last words mingled with the crash of Haines's final stroke. A tomb-like silence followed, and the far-off, muted rumble of engineries seemed to ebb and recede before it. The earthmen stared for a moment at the riven bottles, and then, dropping the useless remnant of his mace, which had been shattered into several fragments, he fled from the chamber. Drawn by the noise of breakage, a number of Ahai had appeared in the hall. They were running about in an aimless, unconcerted manner, like mummies impelled by a failing galvanism. None of them tried to intercept the earthmen. Whether the slumber induced by the gases would be slow or swift in its coming, Haines could not surmise. The air of the caverns was unchanged as far as he could tell. There was no odour, no perceptible effect on his breathing. But already, as he ran, he felt a slight drowsiness, and a thin veil appeared to weave itself on all his senses. It seemed that faint vapours were forming in the corridor, and there was a touch of insubstantiality in the very walls. His flight was without definite goal or purpose. Like a dreamer in a dream, he felt little surprise when he found himself lifted from the floor and borne along through mid-air in an inexplicable levitation. It was as if he were caught in a rushing stream, or were carried on invisible clouds. The doors of a hundred secret rooms, the mouths of a hundred mysterious halls, flew swiftly past him, and he saw in brief glimpses the colossi that lurched and nodded with the ever-spreading slumber, as they went to and fro on strange errands. Then, dimly, he saw that he had entered the high-vaulted room that enshrined the fossil flower on its tripod of crystal and blackened metal. A door opened in the seamless stone of the further wall as he hurtled toward it. An instant more, while he seemed to fall downward through a nether chamber beyond, among prodigious masses of unnameable machines upon a revolving disk that droned infernally. Then he was deposited on his feet, with the whole chamber writing itself about him, and the disk towering before him. The disk had now ceased to revolve, but the air still throbbed with its hellish vibration. The place was a mechanical nightmare, but amid its confusion of glittering coils and dynamos, Haynes beheld the form of Chandler, lashed upright with metal cords to a rack-like frame. Near him, in a still and standing posture, was the giant Tarvo Shai, and immediately in front of him there reclined an incredible thing, whose further portions and members wound away to an indefinite distance amid the machinery. Somehow the thing was like a gigantic plant, with innumerable roots, pale and swollen, that ramified from a bulbular bowl. This bowl, half hidden from view, was topped with a vermilion cup like a monstrous blossom, and from the cup there grew an elfin figure, pearly-hued and formed with exquisite beauty and symmetry, a figure that turned its lilliputian face toward Haines, and spoke in the sounding voice of Valthum. You have conquered for the time, but I bear no rancour toward you. I blame my own carelessness. To Haines, the voice was like a far-off thunder, heard by one who is half asleep. With halting effort, lurching as if he were about to fall, he made his way toward Chandler. Wan and haggard, with a look that puzzled Haines dimly, Chandler gazed upon him from the metal frame, without speaking. I smashed the bottles. Haines heard his own voice with a feeling of drowsy unreality. It seemed the only thing to do, since you had gone over to Valthum. But I hadn't consented, Chandler replied slowly. It was all a deception to trick you into consenting, and they were torturing me because I wouldn't give in. Chandler's voice trailed away, and it seemed that he could say no more. Subtly, the pain and haggardness began to fade from his features, 
as if erased by the gradual oncoming of slumber. Haynes, laboriously trying to comprehend through his own drowsiness, perceived an evil-looking instrument, like a many-pointed metal goad, which drooped from the fingers of Tarvo Shai. From the arc of needle-like tips there fell a ceaseless torrent of electric sparks. The bosom of Chandler's shirt had been torn open, and his skin was stippled with tiny blue-black marks from chin to diaphragm, marks that formed a diabolic pattern. Haines felt a vague, unreal horror. Through the lethe that closed upon his senses more and more, he became aware that Valthum had spoken, and after an interval it seemed that he understood the meaning of the words. All my methods of persuasion have failed, but it matters little. I shall yield myself to slumber, though I could remain awake if I wished, defying the gases through my superior science and vital power. We shall all sleep soundly, and a thousand years are no more than a single night to my followers and me. For you, whose life-term is so brief, they will become eternity. Soon I shall awaken and resume my plans of conquest, and you who dared to interfere will lie beside me then as a little dust, and the dust will be swept away. The voice ended, and it seemed that the elfin being began to nod in the monstrous vermilion cup. Ains and Chandler saw each other with growing, wavering dimness, as if there were grey mist that had risen between them. There was silence everywhere, as if the Tartarian engineries had fallen still, and the Titans had ceased their labour. Chandler relaxed on the torture frame, and his eyelids drooped. Haines tottered, fell, and lay motionless. Tarvo Shai, still clutching his sinister instrument, reposed like a mummified giant. Slumber, like a silent sea, had filled the caverns of Ravamos.